Hope y'all are doing well. We are in a new study through First Peter. Um, all these videos are shot on location at the Bowen Community Group. Um, and so you'll see a new video each week from uh, the Bowen Community Group. Uh, a few people there. Um, we are looking today at First Peter. And the big idea, you can see there, the little kind of subtitle, Everyday Church. And what we're looking at here is... <clears throat> In 1 Peter, what it means now as believers in Christ, since we've been saved by Jesus, to live our lives every day as believers, not just on Sundays, but every day with um, intentionality or gospel intentionality. So um, whenever this book was written, um, just to give you kind of an idea of what's going on, Peter was written in the, in the mid-60s, so obviously a long time ago, 2,000 years ago or so, just under. Uh, and when it was written, he was writing to a group of believers. They had just formed, they had just become believers, and as they were believers, they were, everybody was a new Christian. So everybody was learning how to be a Christian in a community. So they had this community, and this new community together was living as a believer, li- living as believers, trying to figure out what it means to live the Christian life, etc. And then persecution came in, and when persecution came in, there was a dispersion of all of them and they all kind of went different places and they were very distraught that their community was kind of obliterated where they, wouldn't, they weren't able to live in community anymore. They, they, they were all figuring out how to be believers and all of a sudden that was gone. And so he's writing to them for a few different reasons. Number one, trying to talk about persecution, why persecution happens. The other one is to encourage them to continue to persevere in the faith, but also to give them instruction on Christian living because that community was gone. And so they need the ongoing instruction to live as believers. And so if you look, um, we were in this in verses 1 through 12 last week, but you can see in verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then you can see the different regions, um, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So they were dispersed to those particular areas. Uh, and as they were dispersed, they now have to figure out, kind of pick up the pieces, if you will, and figure out, how do I live as a Christian now? How do I live as a believer in Christ without my community anymore? Well, we actually have the benefit of being in a community, but we do also have this amazing benefit of the, of the text here telling us how to live as a Christian. So what we're looking at today is what it means to live as a Christian, but specifically in this, this pursuit of holiness that we're all supposed to be endeavoring after. We all know as believers we're supposed to become more and more like Christ, and today we're going to talk about what it means to pursue holiness. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. Uh, We'll be at verse 13, verse 13 in chapter 1. So let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for what it does for us. God, I thank you that for those of us that are Christ followers, that we've been purified, that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, the gospel, the good news that was at one point in some way proclaimed or preached to us. And by the power of your spirit, you saved us. And now you put us on a path towards righteousness, a path towards becoming more like you each day. You've already saved us. You've already declared us holy. We are declared holy. And that's set. And nothing can ever shake us from that. We cannot lose our salvation. But at the same time, because you've called us holy, you've called us to live as those who are holy. And so I pray for help this morning as we look at this text 
as Peter was writing to those dispersed, giving them advice, giving them words on what it means to be a Christian, that we would look at these things and see how they apply to our lives as well. Holy Spirit, come now. Move in these moments. Cause us to be convicted where we need to be convicted. Cause us to rejoice where we need to rejoice at the good news of the gospel. Cause us to have deeper love for Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read the text all the way through, and then we'll, we'll go back. If you look at verse 13, uh, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, if, if you don't have a Bible, just look underneath you. There's a white and blue one. You can keep that one. It's all yours uh, forever. And you can give it away to someone and come back and take another one if you want. Um, verse 13. Therefore, and again, that's based on all the things previous that we talked about last week, uh, about what it means to be born again to a living hope. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The, the big goal that we're striving for, the big goal that the Lord wants us to have happen in our lives, not just as a result of a sermon today, but in our lives, is the end of verse 21. End of verse 21. So that your faith and hope are in God. The big picture goal that the Lord is always after is your faith and your hope, your central belief and trust in Him, and all your hope be in Him. Uh, this particular book that we've been looking at, especially in chapter 1, uh, Peter is using the idea of hope over and over. You can see in verse 3, he tells us that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, this deep, deep love. He has already caused us to be born again to a living hope. So this isn't a dead hope. This isn't an inactive hope. 
This is a living hope that we have. We see Peter already from the beginning in verse 3 mentions this living hope that we have. You can see it again in verse 12. I'm sorry, 13. Prepare your minds for action and being sober mind. Set your hope fully on grace. And so he's, he's commanding you actually in verse 13 to set your hope on him. And then as he's finishing in verse 21, the goal is that our faith and our hope would be in God. So this idea of hope, um, el piso in the Greek, is not a vague sense of, oh, I really wish this happens. I'm really dreaming that this can happen. This is a, a, a strong, definite confidence of hope in Christ. It's not some kind of abstract, vague sense of eager hoping that, I'm just I'm hoping God makes this happen, all shucks. This is, this is a, an absolute, locked, solid, without question, confident expectation in God. So he's over and over repeating this theme of hope. Now I want to I give you a couple things to um, hang your hat on, if you will, in verses 13 through 16. And then we're going to see the big picture. But I want you to, I want you to feel where Peter's going. Therefore, so based on... All the things we talked about last week, that we have this inheritance that he's given to us because of his great mercy and foundationally in the gospel, he tells you this, to prepare your minds for action. This is literally gird up your loins, uh, which none of us have. If, If all of you wore really long clothes like they did in the first century, this is like pull up all your long clothes because it's time for you to run. You would never run with really long clothes. You would fall all over your face. So the idea here is, Since you've been saved, you've been saved to action, not inaction, not complacency, not sideline sitting, not laziness. You've been prepared for action. Prepare your minds. Pull up the thing and get ready to run. It's time to run and don't do it uh, drunk-mannered. Do it sober-minded. So he tells us, therefore, based on the gospel, God has saved you not to sit on the sidelines, but to be a person of action. To be a person of action. Gird up your lunch. Prepare your minds for action. And do it in a sober-minded fashion. And then he commands here. This is, this is a command in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember in the context, in, in the year 63 or 4, whenever this was likely written, they were elect exiles, as it says in verse 1. They were dispersed everywhere. And so, I mean, they're just very down. What's going on? How come we're everywhere? How come we have no hope? How come our communities are obliterated? Why are we suffering? And he's telling them, hey, your hope is not in that. Your hope is in that coming of Christ. He's going to come and restore all things. And so he's telling them, so I'm commanding you, New Testament command here, hope in Christ. We need to make sure that we get these, there's another command, that we get these commands in order. If you get them out of order, you become radical legalists. I become a radical legalist. So we want to make sure we have them in order. The first command is to set our hope fully on the grace of Christ. And then he says, as obedient children. Um, I, I, I didn't say this properly in first service. I said some of us who have children would think that this is an oxymoron. There's no such thing as obedient children. All, but I, children do have moments of obedience. I should have said that. Forgot. But anyway. But on the whole... Uh, As Peter's writing this, what he wants us to understand is 
He's our father, and we, as his children, we should be the kind of children that live obedient lives. He's just naturally assuming that children would be obedient to their father. As obedient children, I know it's written in a command form, do not be conformed, but it's more of a participle. So it's, as obedient children, being not conformed to the passions is more, it's, a, uh, it's more of a participle being, ends in I-N-G. Being not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So... As he uses this phrase, former ignorance, on some level, uh, sin before Jesus could be in some level claimed ignorance. N- not all. I mean, obviously, we know unbelievers should have uh, an ability to understand the difference between right and wrong. Not like believers, but still have an ability to understand the difference between right and wrong. Um, but he says, for those that are Christians, you can no longer claim this ignorance. In other words... For believers, sin is now willful sin. Sin is intentionally done. It cannot be thought of as ignorance. So first command is to set our hope. And then he gives us the second command of 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also, it doesn't say ought to be. Notice that. It doesn't say ought. He doesn't give us a big kind of picture of this is what you should do. Instead, he cuts right to it and gives us a command. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So we've got, we've got two commands in those first sentences. Hope, be holy. We get those out of order, we become legalists. Be holy, because that's our hope. Wrong. <laughs> hope first, and the hope that we have in Christ, leads us to be able to pursue holiness. Leads us to be able to pursue holiness. So... The big picture idea that we're looking at in 13, verse 13, all the way down through 25, uh, the big idea here, I think, is going to be holiness for us. And what I want to do then is, as we're talking about holiness, I want to start with this. The first thing is desire. I want to get to our desire. Desire the beauty of being like a holy God. So as we've, if you've been around the Bible or Jesus or church or community groups or anything like that, every single one of us knows over and over throughout the New Testament, God expects us to be like Christ. And we've all kind of mentally assented to, yes, I believe that. Yes, I'm supposed to do that. But what happens is whenever we we pursue it for X amount of time, week, two weeks, year, whatever, we have victories, we have successes, but we also have failures. And in those failures, we, we I think... We, we give up. We have maybe had too many in a row and we just, we give up. And so what I want to do is bring us back to the beginning and say, before I say pursue holiness, before the text tells us pursue holiness, I want to get back to this. Desire to pursue holiness. Notice in the language he says, as obedient children, verse 14, do not be are being not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So our passions should be rightly placed, our desires should be rightly placed, not on former ignorance, but since we're not ignorant anymore, we want to have passions rightly placed. We want to start with the desire. I think we all need to start with the desire. I want to desire, and I've worded it this way, the beauty of being like a holy God. It's not tiresome. It's not troublesome. It's beautiful to be like a holy God. 
I think that as we conceive of being holy as beautiful, not exhausting, I think that our desire to do it will grow. So the first is, desire the beauty of being like a holy God. Desire the beauty. But, in verse 15, as he who called you is holy. So, uh, he's mentioning the calling to being a Christ, a Christ follower. Signaling a, a contrast that believers are supposed to have compared to our old lives now that we have this new calling. And he reminds us that God initiated this. And so since God initiated this salvation and summoned us out of darkness, it's a powerful calling to be a Christian now, to follow him. And to follow him means to be holy. And then he tells us, don't miss this, but as he who called you is holy, you also, not ought, but a command here, you also be holy. And don't miss these next few words. This is, this is crucial. In all your conduct. Think how all-encompassing this is. In all your conduct. Grudem says, this speaks of a pattern of life that transforms every day. That transforms every moment. That transforms every thought. That transforms every action. So the call to holiness is not uh, a half-hearted thing. It's not semi-encompassing. It's all-encompassing. Christ is calling all of us to be holy in all of our conduct. How we interact with our neighbors, how we interact with our spouses, how we think when we're walking through Walmart or Target or whatever your store is. It doesn't matter. My point is, is that every day, every moment, every thought, every action, not ought to be holy, he's commanding you to be holy. Let's, let's make sure we feel this. New Testament command to be holy. So this isn't legalism. This isn't me adding a new command. This is Peter, by the power of the Spirit, Saying, hoping God first, and since you've been justified, since you've been declared holy, since you've been declared righteous, your hope set fully on Jesus, and out of that now, you can obey the second command to be holy. And in all of your conduct, in everything that you do, you should be holy. And then he says, not only that, since... so. Here's the why this is the case. Since it is written, quoting Leviticus 11.44, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you spent any time in the book of Leviticus, you, you know it's, it's definitely a tough read. Full of lots of rules. But the big idea of Leviticus is this. God is holy. That's why all these rules are here. You can't keep, keep these rules ever because he's so holy. So keep these rules in order to do your absolute best to be like God. And they point us to our obvious need for a savior because we can't. But the big idea of, holy, of, of Leviticus is holiness. And in this little phrase as he quotes Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter gives us both the ground and the standard for holiness. You shall be holy 
for because I am holy. So that's the ground. The reason why we should be holy is because God is holy. And then also the standard. He says, you shall be holy for I am holy. He calls himself holy and he tells us to be the same thing as him. So that's the standard. So the ground, the reason why we're supposed to be holy is because he is. And the standard is being like him. In other words, we're told here to imitate God. Literally, imitate God in every way, in all of our conduct, in everything we can possibly do. So, Peter, by the power of the Spirit, that means God, does not think that saying, well, I can't do that so I don't need to try, is a valid reason. Because it's a command here. It's not even a suggestion. It's not even like you ought to. God is telling us, this is doable. Not only is it, so, not, not only is it just doable, God's saying, I'm commanding you to do this. I'm commanding you to be holy. Now, again, don't forget, hope first in Jesus based on the gospel then Christ. It's, it's all gospel-centered. It's because Christ has borne our shame. Christ has gone to the cross. Christ has died in our place. And thereby we have been now declared righteous so we can be. But... Here's the trick. In all of our lives, we, we know this, this declaration or this command of being holy is given to us. And after X amount of time of pursuing it, we just seemingly fail, get exhausted, and stop and say it's just too hard. But God, in this text, and really I, I would say the Bible, is not letting us off the hook that way. He's telling you, Keep pursuing holiness. Keep pursuing holiness. So here's, here's what I want to do. And this is a little bit different, possibly, possibly, than the sermons you've heard if you're a believer. Be holy, come on, pursue holiness. I'm going to try to take it at a different way. And I think that, I think that this way isn't as exhausting. And I know that it can be exhausting. It's not meant to be exhausting, but I just know it is. Um, what will it take for us to truly pursue holiness? Like truly pursue it. What will it take for us to say, okay, I don't want you to be exhausted. I want you to have real victory. I don't want you to think that pursuing holiness is not possible because God thinks it is. God thinks it's doable. So I'm going to... uh, kind of peep over the shoulders, if you will, of a sermon called Under the Faucet by Matt Chandler and bring in some of the things that he says. It's different, kind of different than what he's saying, but it's transferable and I think it's very helpful. He has this little sermon called Under the Faucet where basically uh, if I want to get wet, then I can't stand over here if the faucet's over there. If the faucet is where the water's coming out, I have to stand under the faucet and then that's how I get wet. Without question... If that's where the holiness is and I want to be holy and I stand over here, then I'm not going to have the holiness falling down on my head. Instead, if that's where the holiness is, I need to walk over here where the holiness is coming out of the faucet and stand here. Does that make sense? Now, 
this is all in terms of sanctification. I'm not talking about terms of justification. But I want us to think, I want us to answer the questions about why we seemingly have so little victory, I think, in pursuing holiness. And every time we're kind of confronted with this question, continually as believers, what will it take for me to pursue holiness? I think that most of us, we've heard it so many times, we say, oh, that question just exhausts me now. I've been a Christian for 20 years and it's just, it's just exhausting now to think about it. I'm just waiting, I'm waiting for glory. <laughs> I'm waiting for him just to take me away. And here's the thing, I don't want you to feel exhausted. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask kind of a couple questions here and I want you to just write these things down, all right? There's, there's two questions, just four things, if you will. What are the things that stir your affections for Jesus? Think about it. What are the things that stir your affections for Jesus? When, you, when your affections, your love are stirred for Jesus, I would argue that's when we're standing under the faucet. That's when we're standing under the faucet. And what are the things that rob you for your affections for Jesus? Those things, by the way, can be morally neutral. They can be morally neutral. Football, in and of itself, is morally neutral. It's not, you know from the Lord necessarily. And it's not from the devil either, right? You can watch it and it's morally neutral. So what are the things where you're standing under the faucet, stir your affections, what are the things that, that don't? And here's what I want you to do. This is, I don't want it to be exhausting. I don't want you to say, I can't have victory. I think you can. So here's, here's my challenge for every single one of you. Write those things down right now. I'm gonna give you kind of my little list this is my list. It's not your list. This is mine. So when you hear this list, don't say, well, those things are good. And those things are bad because that's FUD's list. That's for me because I think these things can be morally neutral. These are mine. But this is for me. When I'm under the faucet, this is, these are the things that stir my affection for Jesus. Good coffee, early mornings, journaling, reading my Bible, worship music. And if you can play guitar, actually playing it yourself and singing even like you don't care if people hear. Um, no late nights, being in a community, and when temptation comes, killing it right away. Like, just fleeing immediately. As soon as it comes, fleeing to Christ, fleeing to my wife, here's what's going on, fleeing, fleeing immediately. Those are the things, when I'm, when I'm standing under that faucet, my affections are served for Jesus. That's me. Here's the things that, that rob me of my affections for Jesus. Again, morally neutral. Bad coffee. Um, too much media in my life, social or, you know, viewing, excuses for not being in community, music that's not about Jesus. I'm not saying that if you listen to the Beatles that it's bad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for me, this is for me. If I have too much non-Jesus worship music, then my, my affections are off. I'm robbed. I'm thinking of things that aren't Christ-like. I'm, I've removed myself from being under the faucet. So here's, here's what I want to do. I know every one of us as believers knows at our heart we want to pursue holiness. So here's my, my challenge. This is what I want you to do. Right now, in these next couple minutes, I want you literally to write down four things that stir your affections for Jesus and four things that rob your affections for Jesus. And here's the challenge. For the next seven days, for the next seven days, those things that stir your affections for Jesus, I want you to put yourself under the faucet. It's 1157. So literally, 
at 11.57 next Sunday, you can stop this challenge. And the things that rob your affection for Jesus, those four or five things, I don't want you to do them this week. If it's Netflix, you paid for the other three weeks. You can have it back then, but don't do Netflix if it's Netflix. If it's Facebook, don't Facebook or get on the Facebook. Delete it off your phone if you have to do it. Do whatever you can, whatever that is, whatever the thing is, morally neutral or not, I want you to, for the next seven days, and this, this is not legalism. This is, don't say that's legalistic, for this is not legalism. This is not forever. This is one week. I want you to write down the things that, looking back over my life, whenever I was a college student or in my young 20s or my newlywed or whatever, even in your 40s or whatever, whenever I look back and I say, man, I was... I was walking with Jesus at those particular times. I was doing that. I was doing that. I was having good coffee. I was having early mornings. I was journaling. I was listening to worship music. I was in community. Those are mine. Whatever yours are. And look back over that time where I wasn't walking with Jesus. What was I doing? I was staying up too late. I was on Facebook too much. I was on TV too much. I don't know. Whatever it is. It's your list, not mine. I want you to take the next 60 seconds. It's going to be awkward because I'm not going to talk at all. Because I really want you to concentrate. Not concentrate on silence, but I want you to concentrate and write the list right now. Don't sell yourself short here. Don't try to short circuit the system. One of the kids said, you know what robs my affection for Jesus, mom, is math. So I need to put that on the rob my affection. I can't do math for the next week. You can't do that, right? What really stirs my affections is cake and ice cream and pizza and soda. Like, so I need that. <laughs> Don't try to short circuit. Just put things for your advantage. Think about your life. And see, here's the deal. It's, it, it's noon right now. It's exactly 12. For the next seven days till noon next week. I want to know if right now, that list, you'll commit to it. Commit to it right now for the next seven days. Like absolutely. It's not legalism. This is just seven days. Will you commit to that list right now? Will you go under the faucet? The things that stir, I'm just going to do those things in all my free time. I'm going to work. I'm going to take care of my family or my roommates or whatever. But in my free time, I'm going to do those things. And in my free time, I'm not going to do these things. And for the next seven days, I want you to do these things. I want you to concentrate. I know that it's tough. I know that it can be. And I want you to see at the end of the seven days, 
that when you put yourself under the faucet, having your affection stirred for Jesus, pursuing holiness is not exhausting. It's not exhausting. Because the reason why it gets exhausting is because it's not done out of love. We're trying to stir affections for Christ. And when you love someone, I don't think it's exhausting. I think we say, my desire, my passions are enhanced to want to do that thing. I see the beauty of being like him and I want that. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to pray literally. I still got two more points. This isn't the end of the sermon. I'm going to pray literally and you're going to pray with me. It's 12.02. At 12.02, God, I commit for the next seven days to do these things. These four things and these four things. This is a commitment time right now. As I pray, you pray. And then we're going to, we're going to talk about encouragement after that. Let's pray right now. Close your eyes. If you want to do it, Right now, commit it. God, we commit right now in these moments to pursue holiness in this way for the next seven days. We know that this isn't legalism. It can feel that way, but it's not. There's a direct command to pursue holiness. And so I pray for my friends here. The things they've written down that enhance their love for you. God, I pray for the next seven days they would do those things. And the things that don't, they would, by the power of the Spirit, not do those And at the end of these seven days, God, they would see, they would see that this is not exhausting to love Christ and be like him. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you committed to that, I wanna wanna encourage you right now to tell the person beside you I committed to it and then and then make sure you hold each other accountable. If they said, I can't do Facebook, then don't send them a Facebook, right? Send them a text or a phone call. I know that seems crazy to call someone these days, but they still work. You can actually use your voice and talk to them. I want you to, I want you to talk to each other through this. And at the end, I want you to, at the end, end of the seven, seven days, say, I want you to see, I should say, that pursuing holiness does not have to be exhausting. And, and here's the thing. After this next seven days... If you think that was not, that was not exhausting. I want you to consider this. Why not do it for another seven? Because when you get to where you are not being challenged by me to do it, but you want to, we have literally left the building of legalism. You, you would want to do it. And then after that seven days, if it still feels like yes, why not do it again? It's not legalistic. It's love. So that's the first one. The first one is that we desire the beauty of being like a holy God. Desire the beauty of being like a holy God. Now at verse 17, Peter takes a little turn. And so I want you to prepare yourselves. Uh, It's going to feel a little guilt trippy. It's going to feel like, you trying to put a guilt trip on me, Peter? And it's, it's Peter writing from the power of the Holy Spirit, so don't, don't think it is. But basically what he's saying, he's saying, um, I'm assuming you pray. And since you pray, you're praying to a God who's the judge of all the world. And since he's the judge of all the world, you should be scared of this judge, so be holy. So <laughs> you're like, wait a second. But let's see it. I want you to make sure you feel it because after he does that in the first couple of verses, he grounds that in 
the beauty of the gospel. Notice what he says. And if you call on him as father. So Peter is absolutely assuming that readers will call on Father, our, our God our father. And that will pray to him regularly. And he's going to remind us he's the judge of the universe. So if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking holiness. I'm thinking holiness. Conduct yourselves with, but he says fear. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's, he's talking about that dispersion. Conduct yourselves basically for the rest of your life out of fear. And we stop and we say, why is he saying fear? So this fear is not like terror, you know. It's phobos. It's, it's reverent fear. It's reverent fear. This is, think of fear of discipline of a good father. So, if you're if you're a dad, you're gonna you're gonna be right with me. Or mom, you're gonna be right with me. If 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 you have a dad or mom, you'll be right with me. So here's the thing. So there are times as a, as a dad, whenever I discipline, and I'm like, that was the that was probably the worst discipline I've ever handed out. Not the consequence, but the man, the manner in which I did it could have been, you know, could have not been more pagan than it could. I want it to be more gospel centered. I want it to be more like God. But that right there was the worst display of discipline ever. And then there's times like, oh, that was perfect. I did it right. Like I took him off to the side or her, whichever, you know, I took him off to the side. Siblings aren't around. I explained, I didn't do it out of anger. I explained everything they did wrong. They recited back to me how they know what they did was wrong. We talked about it. There was a, a discipline given, whatever your stance is on what that discipline and how it looks, that discipline was given. And afterwards we hugged it out and we're like, like, woohoo, we love each other. And then we went back into the room and it was like, oh, grace-based. I didn't discipline out of um, fear. I didn't discipline out of morality. I got right to the heart. Okay, here's the thing. God disciplines you that way every time. Every time. So the discipline of God is always perfect. So when we say fear right here, he's saying you should have a healthy fear of discipline of God, but that discipline is the, the perfect discipline that can be given. Not fear-based, not wrongly done, not guilt-trip laden. So when we say fear, this is him telling us that we should fear the discipline of God. The, the reverent, we should have a reverent fear. It should take away the picture of the big tyrant demanding that you just don't make him look bad. Don't make me look bad in front of others. That's, it should take away that mindset. That's not at all what we're talking about. That's a backwards picture of God as father. Grudem says, although many today dismiss fear of God as just an Old Testament concept, which has no place in the new covenant, they do so to the neglect of all the New Testament passages and do so also to the impoverishment of their spiritual lives. So God does discipline us, but perfectly. It's not just the Old Testament tyrant. There's a discipline in the New Testament where it's, grace-based and done correctly. Fear of God's discipline is a good and proper attitude that a New Testament or a sign of a New Testament church should have. And it actually grows you in maturity and helps you experience God's blessing. Moreover, fear, and I should say proper fear of, of the proper discipline of God is connected with gross and holiness in the New Testament. Fear of God, fear of his proper discipline is not inconsistent with us loving him or inconsistent with knowing that he loves us. When I discipline my child right, they're absolutely confident. Without a, without a doubt, they know that I love them. 
That's how the Lord disciplines us. So the second thing is, now that I've kind of set the groundwork to give us number two, fear, the displeasure, you could even say discipline, the good discipline, the proper discipline of our good father. We need to fear it. So holiness should be pursued because there are consequences from a good, perfect father. Now, this was second. We started with, we want to have desire for holiness because he is holy. He's commanded us to be holy because we have our hope set in him. So we've already, Peter has, and we have already established the gospel centrality of this pursuit of holiness. But there is an element by which if we don't pursue holiness, we're going to receive the discipline of the Lord. Before we, uh, as we hear this word fear and get too fearful and think that he's a tyrant, Peter wants to make sure we know that God isn't. And then verses 18 through 21 grounds all of this fear of discipline again in the gospel. He gives us three kind of picture or portraits in 18 through 21 of the gospel. I want to go through them quickly and I want this, the beauty of these, these verses to wash over you and refresh you as you hear these three different portraits of, or pictures of, of the gospel. The first one is in verse 18. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So what he's wanting you to see is because of the gospel, pursue holiness. And this gospel, by the way, is where Christ has ransomed you. Ransom is to purchase someone's freedom by paying the ransom. So we don't have a father who has a particular set of skills to come in and break us out of the ransom and not have to pay the ransom like Liam Neeson and Taken, right? It's, it's, he's going to, has a particular set of skills to give us his son to die for us and pay the ransom. He's not trying to get away from the ransom. He's going to pay the ransom. We were ransomed. God the Father bought our freedom by paying a ransom. He willingly did it. No one hold God, holds God hostage. No one ties his hands behind his back and say, if you don't, God willingly paid this ransom. This makes me think of Hosea. There's a, an Old Testament story. If you're not familiar with it, there's a man named Hosea. And God came and said, there's a woman named Gomer. She's a prostitute and I want you to marry her. And no matter what you do, no matter how deeply you pursue her, she's going to be unfaithful. She's going to be unfaithful. No matter how you love her, no matter how much you pursue, she's going to be unfaithful. But I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a heart that's going to love her anyway. And then she was unfaithful. And then he was broken. Devastated. And the Lord kept his promise. And I'm going to give you a heart that loves her anyway. And he said, go get her. She's with another man right now. Go get her. And he said, Lord came and said, go again, Hosea, and love this woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress right now. So Hosea went and he pulled together his silver and he went to the man that owned his wife and owned his wife's heart that loved his wife and whom she loved and he bought her back. 
And he said to her, come now and dwell in my house as my wife, not as his, but as my wife, and be unfaithful no more. Do not belong to another man again. I'm going to be your husband. And he bought her. He paid the ransom. And she came. And she lived with him. This is what Peter is saying. And he's saying, in the text, you were ransomed, you were bought back. But he says, as it says, not like Hosea, you weren't bought with silver. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal and heritage away from your foes, you weren't bought with perishable things such as silver or gold. Unlike Hosea, you weren't, you weren't bought with things that perish. But, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ. We were the unfaithful. And he was the one who had the heart that never stopped loving us. And he came to our lover's home and said, come back. I'm buying you right now with the precious blood of Christ and I'm pulling you out of that. And come and be mine. I mean, just think of the vast love of that right now. So when we're talking about fear the discipline of the Lord, he couches it in this amazing gospel notion that you've been ransomed. And so the fearing of the Lord is so much more softened knowing that that's the guy who says I should fear, but that's the guy who loved me so much that he bought me back. That was silver. But he bought me with the precious blood of his own son. That's kind of the first portrait that you were ransomed. The second portrait is that he gave his own son as our substitute. You are brought with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So as we're hearing mentionings of blood and lamb and spot and blemish, he reminds us that Christ was the substitute put in our place. We should have died, but he pulled us out and he put his own son forward. And he was the substitute for us. He died the death that we should have died and gave us all of his righteousness. So the second portrait here of the gospel of the reason why we should fear the Lord is because Jesus was our substitute. Jesus in our place. That was our place. The third thing I want you to see is this. Um, This wasn't God haphazardly scrounging around to try to figure out how to get you back. This wasn't him wringing his hands, wondering how he's going to get the people he loves back. Verse 20, he was foreknown. That word can also be destined. He was destined before the foundation of the world. Christ, his death on the cross was always plan A from the beginning of the world. There was no plan B. And because God's powerful enough, his plans will not be thwarted. So the third thing I want you to see here is it was always God's plan from the foundation of the world that Christ would come forward to purchase you, to ransom you. Through him are believers in God now who've been raised from the dead that give him glory. And here it is. Here's, we end with what I said, that the, where we're, the whole point of this set of verses, so that your faith and your hope are in God. I mean, that's just a lot of stuff to unpack to finally get back to that verse and say, ah, I see why all my faith and hope should be in him. He ransomed me. He substituted himself for me. It was always the plan of God. 
and he's calling me into holiness, but he says, commands me to hope and then says, now you can pursue holiness. Here's the third thing. God that calls us to be holy, we can trust him forever. As we get to verse 22, he's going to take a little turn here, kind of a little right turn. All of this has been self-reflective. All of this has been eyes on your own heart. And now here, couched in holiness, in the idea of being holy, he points you away and says, part of being holy is not just not sinning, but loving other people. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Real quickly, I want to make sure we understand verse 22 because if you read it, it can be confusing. When it says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, you can think, if I obey the truth, if I obey God's commands, by doing that, I can have a pure soul. That's, the back, that's backwards. That's not the gospel. That's not... I don't think that's what he's saying. Let me, let me show you why. It's not out of the characteristic of God to say, when you believe in Jesus for the first time and you're justified, it's not out of the characteristic of God to say, that can be called obeying the gospel. Obeying the gospel can be equal to believing in Christ. I'm gonna show you right here in this book. We don't even have to leave First Peter. Go over to chapter three. And in, in this context, it's, it's women who have husbands that aren't Christians. And, and Peter's saying, you want them to come, become a believer? Live as a believer, and they'll become a Christian. And notice how the language you use. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not, look at that, obey the word, they may be one without a word. One to what? One to Jesus. So how are they one? Notice the language. So that even if some do not obey the word, obey the word. Look back over in chapter 1, the very end, verse 25. And this word is the good news that's preached to you. That's the gospel. Gospel's preached. You become a believer. You obey the gospel. You believe in Christ. You obey the gospel. You obey the good news or believe the good news. And that's how you're a Christian. So back up to 22 having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, that's just obedience to the word. So trusting in Christ, believing in Christ, becoming a Christian, being justified, obeying the truth, obeying the word, however you want to phrase it, that has purified my soul. Now by that justification, verse 22, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, and that squares with the rest of the Bible. My soul has been purified because of Christ's believing in him. Now, I have a sincere brotherly love. I'm supposed to love one another from a pure heart. And then verse 23 just nails it home. Since, that means it's already happened, you've been born again. So all that means is regeneration has happened, faith has happened, and now you're living a life of holiness. So back over to this. Here he says, part of holiness is not just killing sin. It's also loving your neighbor. It's not just being self-focused. And indifferent to the needs of others. It is wholly focused on others. Holiness, which we're commanded, means loving other people. It means loving other people. And notice what it says here. I want you to not miss the way it's described. Love one another. Here it is. Earnestly. 
from a pure heart. The command here in holiness is that you are to love others earnestly, not half-heartedly, not lazily, earnestly from a pure heart. Does that describe the way you love other people? Earnestly from a pure heart? (laughs) If I'm honest, that's not the way it describes the way I love other people most of the time. Conveniently, half-heartedly, but that's not what's commanded. Earnestly from a pure heart. We all have places that we can pursue holiness, places we can improve. Once you've begun to grow in holiness and you have a genuine love for other people, you can now develop within you an earnest, deep, strong love for other people. This is maybe this is the way to say it. I think it's the, this is mind-blowing. I, I don't have much other words to say. I, I'm grasping for words to try to say how I feel about this truth. Here's the truth. And then I have no words besides just, I want to scream. Because you've been born again, because you've been born again, you are literally free now, completely free to love others like God loves. That's how God loves, earnestly from a pure heart. And he's saying, you have that ability in Christ. And because you've been born again, you literally have the ability to love others like God loves. I don't even know what to say. Amazing, wonderful. I don't know what to say. Isn't that unbelievable? That's, that's unbelievable. Simply incredible. I can love other people like God loves them. So we're going to go into a time of reflection and confession and challenge and worship and standing and giving Christ all the honor he's due. As we've been talking about holiness, this is where I want you to, as we worship together, I want you to commit. One, I want you to desire the beauty of being like Christ and say, yes, I'm going to commit to the challenge for the next seven days. Yes. The second thing, I want you to base it all on the gospel, fear of the discipline of the Lord because of the gospel, because of the ransom that has been paid, because of the fact that he substituted his own son for me. And it was always his plan from eternity past. And I want you to now live a life that shows I can love other people in the same way God loves them. God has loved us with the most selfless love ever. You have that ability. So as we stand and sing, just sing about that great news. Confess. Rejoice. Let's pray. God, be with us now as we worship you, as we reflect back to you your glory. As we stand in awe of who you are, Lord, with all of our hearts, magnify you. We pray that we would take up this challenge of pursuing holiness because you're so good. We pray this in Jesus' name.